Hey, Crime Sound listeners, I'm your host, Ashley. And I'm Ricky. And we have a fairly recent case this week covering a killer who was living a normal life in the city of Ashland, Ohio. It's a case that wasn't in the national headlines, from what we know, blasted all over the internet, but one that we stumbled across and we couldn't go without telling. However, we would like to warn you, as we will cover the details of this case, which include abduction, rape, and murder. Some listeners may be sensitive to this nature. Every town has its good and bad. But in a small town of Ashland, Ohio, with a population of approximately 20,000 people, an evil man lurked the streets. And when you think evil, do you think some scary guy with a ski mask on? Well, it was someone who appeared to be that same guy who held the door open for you last time. Or that one you saw sitting in traffic or walking past you along the street. Just an everyday person. This case will really show us that you can't trust people. Well, this man was named Sean Great, and he was 41 years old, committed five murders since 2006, to when he was finally arrested in 2016, where he was given the death penalty. And his explanation behind all of this He said he felt it was necessary to protect society. It all began with a 911 call on September 13, 2016, lasting about 15 to 20 minutes until police finally arrive. After what probably felt like hours to the girl who called, she was being held captive by a man who was watching her every move, keeping her tied up and under his control. And we definitely wanted to share this police call with you. And because it is a 20-minute phone call recording, we did shorten it. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can always go to our website. 911, what is the address to your emergency? I just lost street laundry mat. What is it? Fourth street laundry mat. What's the problem? I've been exhausted. What's your name? How do you spell your last name? Who abducted you? Sean, great. Where's she at now? Asleep. Where's she sleeping at? In the bedroom. In what bedroom? There's two houses right by the laundry street. And it's in one of those houses. But you're at the laundromat? No, I'm I'm in the bedroom with them. What color is the house? Is it a cross? If I'm looking at the laundry mat, which way is it? If you're looking in the laundry mat, it's one on the left of the two. You don't know what color the house is? No. So this was the beginning of the call where the young woman seems to be talking in a quiet, almost calm voice to the dispatcher in 
like almost one word answers where the dispatcher seems like she's more in a panic asking question after question getting as much information as she can but like some of the questions don't even seem relevant and of course asking about where she is well yeah that makes sense but she asked her questions about his hair color what he's wearing and i can kind of sense that the girl on the phone just wanted to say like who cares what he looks like i'm in danger get me out of here but being that she's in the same room as this guy, she had to remain calm. I mean, she did a really good job, though. Like, she was such a trooper. But one thing that I think is a little strange is the dispatcher didn't really put it together until, like, the middle of the call that she was actually in the room with this guy. Like, she was a couple feet from him. Are you injured? A little. Is there any way you can get out of the building? I don't know, without waking him, and I'm scared. Is there a bathroom in the house? Well, his bedroom is closed, and he made it so it would make noise. But if you told me how to go to the bathroom, he would do something to you? Yeah, because he had me tied up. Are you tied up now? Well, I, yeah, but I kind of freed myself. Do you think you can get out? You need to get out. Unless they were right here. He was here me catch me and he's strong. Can you get out of the house? It's locked. It's locked. Are you at the door? Yeah, I am. She's at the door. You're on the door to the right hand side of the house. Yeah. She's at the door on the right side of the house. She got out of the bedroom. Is there a window there? Yeah, I'm looking out and they come and come back. She said to hurry, hurry. She said to hurry up and come back. Can you Yeah, they can see me if they come through it. The door is locked. No, the bedroom door had no door handed. This one she it's locked. You can't get out. Can you unlock the door at all? Wow, hurry up, hurry up, get out of here. Where is he? Is that still sleeping? Still sleeping? Yeah. Okay, they have her. He went on her arms. Yeah. Right. You need to go. Hang on. <laughs> So 20 minutes later, the police finally arrive. Like, it's so hard to even just imagine how she felt. Like, imagine yourself lying next to your captor. He's asleep and you have one chance to escape. And you get this feeling that it's now or never. But like waking him up could cause horrible things to happen. Like him finding out that you're trying to get help could get you killed. But at that point in time, what more do you have to lose? You've been raped, tased, beaten, restrained, and told you were going to die? This girl was her own hero. And now we don't know her real name and we never came across any pictures of her. 
but she's a strong and encouraging woman who went through absolute hell. And so for protection and privacy, she's referred to as Jane Doe. And just to reflect here on what she actually went through, she had bruises all over her body. She was sexually assaulted. She was tied to a bed and she was held captive for over two days with no water or food. Honestly, it's just amazing that she even made it out of the house. The odds were totally against her. And after being held captive and not knowing if she was going to live or die, she's now free from this horrible man. And she testified against Sean in court and explained at first he was a friendly guy. They'd talk about life and he actually was pretty goofy and witty, but respectful. She was a religious young woman who met Sean over the summer of 2016 while she was walking to the Croc Center. Basically, it's like a YMCA. They had lunch and hung out a few times after that, going on walks and sometimes playing tennis at a local park. However, she was taking things pretty slow in the romantic department and really saw him as just a friend, nothing more. And even after spending about a month and a half talking. But everything took a turn when one night they were walking and he brought her to an abandoned house. He instantly changed from a sweet guy and told her that she's not going anywhere. This turned into a fight and then things got physical as she did everything she could to fight him off. But he was just too strong and he overpowered her and began choking her, which is when she realized that she was under his control. And it was from there that she was continuously raped. She was tied up and even sometimes in weird positions to where she wasn't able to move at all, even being restrained by her neck. He controlled her every move, even if she had to go to the bathroom, he came with her. How she made that 911 call and getting out of there is seriously just amazing. She's such an extremely brave person. And I feel like she recognized an opportunity to escape and she just took it. He forced her to take muscle relaxers. He told her that this would help her relax and then he would have his way with her. She was brought to the hospital where she was examined as dark bruises covered her entire body including her neck and legs. A rape kit was done, which showed signs of trauma, and this was used as evidence in court. It's also believed that she most likely never knew what was being hidden in the abandoned house, as she was being held captive. But in the bedroom closet, police found a gruesome discovery. Under a pile of clothes, police came across a body of a woman that was starting to skeletonize. And although the body had been there for a few weeks, the smell was described by police as something horrendous and flies covered her entire body. And looking closer, her hands were bound behind her back and her ankles were tied together. And after an autopsy, examiners found her cause of death to be from strangulation. Her body was soon identified as Elizabeth Griffith, She was a 29-year-old, a religious girl who Sean used to go to church with. She lived on her own in an apartment and suffered from schizophrenia, and she was seeing a counselor for this. But things got suspicious when she was missing several appointments, and her counselor wasn't able to get a hold of her at all. So she reported to police about this on September 7th, but she pretty much kept to herself. However, the last time anyone spoke to her was around August 16th, So it was about a full month that no one even heard from her. 
It was like she just vanished. Now, when Sean was arrested, he said they met at a YMCA and he took her to the house where he strangled Elizabeth, mentioning to the investigators that he did her a favor by killing her. She was killed just one month from when police found her body, and sadly, no one was really looking for her. And when police continued to do a full search of the abandoned house, they came across a second body, who was found in the basement. It was a woman's body, unclothed from the waist down, and she had a piece of cloth tied around her neck. Her body was decomposing, but it wasn't as decayed as the first body. Police were able to identify her fairly quickly as her purse was nearby and had her ID inside. Her name read Stacy Stanley Hicks. She was kidnapped, raped, and robbed, and then her corpse was grossly abused. And while she was missing, her son was active in the search. He started looking for her as soon as she went missing. Police also found numerous items, including a cell phone, stun gun, wallets, a pair of brass knuckles, as well as a debit card with Stanley's name on it. They even found a makeshift sex toy. It was a pipe covered with clothing and wrapped in a condom. It's pretty weird. So although at this point, things are starting to come to the surface as Sean is confessing to the police. We're going to take a quick break here to tell you about BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online service that I personally use for my mental health. They provide a number of professional licensed counselors who specialize in all situations that may be interfering with your happiness. It's seriously my personal outlet to get my mind right. It's affordable. It's so convenient. I decided to give BetterHelp a shot when I was going through a very anxious part of my life. So I just signed up and I was matched with an amazing counselor who was so willing to talk with me right away. We actually set up a video chat later in the week to catch up. We are all so busy. Give yourself the care that you need today. Start living a happier life. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash crime salad. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash crime salad. But what exactly happened to these women? We may never fully know. And during the police interview, Sean explained that him and Stacy met when her tire was flat. And he approached her as a friendly, helpful guy to see if she needed any help. And as she offered him a cup of coffee and a ride, he made his evil attack inside the abandoned home. Stacy drove her car to Ashland the day she went missing. Being that the vehicle was found a few blocks from the abandoned house, it's believed that he drove the car to hide it at a different location. And although what was found so far is absolutely horrible, this was only the beginning of what police start to unravel with Sean. When Sean was first arrested, for the most part, he was pretty open about what he did. He confessed to the murders of the bodies that were found in the house, but he told police that he killed five women in total. So where were the other three? One of the victims that Sean led police to was Candace Cunningham. And sure enough, her body was found in a neighboring town on the day of his arrest. Police find her body behind a house in a wooded area, and when Sean confessed to murdering Candace, he said he strangled her in a vacant house. 
Another murder he confessed to during his interview happened in March of 2015, a girl named Rebecca Lisi. Her body was found in March in the woods and her death was originally assumed a drug overdose and it's believed she died on the 16th of March. According to the original death certificate, her cause of death was pending and her family even believes that her death was definitely related to her drug problem. But what's weird is she was telling people that she was scared for her life shortly before she went missing. She was living on the streets as a prostitute and a drug addict. And of course, that would be a scary way to live. Now, according to the family and the people she was associated with, they all knew that she did talk to Sean Great, but they still don't believe that he had anything to do with her death. They knew each other because they both were living on the streets, basically homeless, living in vacant homes. But ever since this interview with police, Sean claims that he strangled her after she stole $4 from him at a bar. $4, that's just crazy. And during this interview, after the murder, he explained that he drove her body, which was stuffed in a bag, and dumped it in a wooded area. Which, I get what the family is saying, because she was definitely heavy into drugs, but I can't seem to understand why Sean would claim that he killed her if he didn't. And the family is still believing that Sean had nothing to do with this. I mean, maybe Sean is looking for that sort of attention, that he wasn't already getting. But ever since his confession during this interview, police have reopened the investigation into Rebecca's death. Now for this final victim, Sean mentions it was his first murder. He was having a hard time remembering what her name was, saying it starts with a D. It was either Diana, Diane, or Dana. And then it came to him that it was for a fact Dana. He remembers that she was trying to sell him magazines when he felt it was a scam because his mom wasn't receiving her subscription that she ordered from her a while ago. And this is the most mysterious one of them all. In Marion County, Ohio, female skeletal remains were found when a man was collecting scrap metal. He came across a skull at a dump site off a road called Victory Road, which is north of Marion. And from there, it was a bit of a search to put a name to these remains, to this body that has been in this field for about one to five years. She remained unidentified for 12 years until 2019, and the whole time she was referred to as Jane Doe. To try to find out who this body was, there were multiple forensic sketches and a clay model that was built. And in January 2018, isotope analysis was done, indicating that she was likely from the southern United States, possibly born in Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, or Florida, maybe Georgia. Which, if you're not too familiar with isotope testing, it's pretty fascinating. In short, basically, researchers are able to determine where a person lived based on that geographic area. And it's based on the temperature and the climate and also the metals in the water that someone would drink, which is used to measure the isotopes in the body. Basically, you are what you eat. And really, it wasn't until June 2019, 
three years after Sean confessed to this murder, when the DNA Doe Project identified the body as Dana Nicole Lowry, who was 23 and born in Minden, Louisiana. Dana had two daughters, aged one and five at the time of her death, and she was actually separated from her husband. However, when police reached out to the family once they had a name to this body, the children didn't take the news too hard. I mean, her mom has been missing for 12 some years and the youngest one doesn't remember her at all and the older one barely remembers her. Sean was once married to a woman named Amber Bowman. They divorced after being married for only a year and had a daughter together. And in an interview with Dr. Phil, she went on to tell a heartfelt story of how the two were happily married at a time and how they met in church. The two immediately hit it off, and they were married after only four months of dating. She went on to say that Sean was loving, caring, and attentive, but eventually he turned very dark, and he would often disappear at odd hours of the night or in the day. He also tried to isolate Amber from her family, and after finding out that Sean had been cheating on her, she decided that she had no other choice than to kick him out of the house and end their marriage. And shortly after this, Sean was beginning to get very aggressive, sending Amber threatening messages relating to their daughter and Amber's family. He told Amber that if he doesn't get to see his daughter, then no one will. And after this, Amber had to get a restraining order against Sean. Another thing that I think is strange is Sean wrote two letters to News 5 Cleveland's Megan Hickey. In his letters, he spoke about all five victims, and he even gave a motive to why he did it. In order to verify his identity, he sent the original copy of his indictment number, and he also traced his left hand and signed the document. I'm not really sure why he was so diligent about proving his identity to Megan, but he definitely didn't want there to be any question that these letters came from him. The letters were three sheets of paper with very sloppy cursive writing. And in these letters, he went on to explain a strange conspiracy theory about how the people he killed were already dead and that the government assistance program took their minds. He clearly stated that once they got onto government assistance and started receiving checks, the government would take their minds. Another strange part of these letters is that Sean used Bible verses throughout all of the letters verses from the book of Revelations and Hebrews. While Sean was being held at the Ashland County Jail, he agreed to sit down for a Q&A session with Cleveland 19 News. And now the reporter wasn't able to bring any recording devices, so, so what was noted was not verbatim. And I know this is all going to be very confusing to put together, but just to clarify, he pleaded not guilty to the charges in court less than a month before this very interview, which his plea for not guilty was directed by his attorney. But during the interview, he admitted to all of the murders and continues to do so openly with the media and with the police. He spoke to the media so much that the judge had to basically order him to shut up and imposed a gag order against him, cutting off all of his communications. And a few things that we did get from the series of questions in this interview was the gap between his first murder in 2006 and the next woman who was murdered in 2015. So why was there a nine-year gap? 
And he explained that during this time, he was in jail for not paying child support. So if he wasn't in jail during this time, how many more women would he have murdered? And then if we fast forward to 2016, he murdered three women. And he also explained that he was planning to marry the woman that he was holding hostage who called 911 on him. He explained that he wasn't going to kill her and that they had meaningful conversations. She was a very inspirational and religious woman. Which, okay, maybe in his head he wanted her, which kind of would make sense because whenever he first brought her into the abandoned house, he told her that you're not going anywhere, forcing her to be with him when the whole time she obviously didn't want a relationship at all. He even explained to police that he would tell certain people in ways that he did murder women. He would break down crying to them, but then he would say something to throw them off and confuse them, which probably left these people feeling weird vibe with Sean, and at the same time not really wanting to believe what he's saying. While in court, the prosecutor started off with how brave the woman who called 911 was. And as pictures of the black and blue bruises that covered her entire body were shown, the results of the rape kit were also provided. Sean then pleaded guilty and was charged with kidnapping and sexual assault in multiple counts including rape, gross abuse of a corpse, four counts of burglary, tampering with evidence, unauthorized use of a vehicle, and breaking and entering, and a handful of charges more, adding up to a total of 23 charges, but he pleaded not guilty to the murders. And on May 7th, Sean was found guilty of murdering Stacy Stanley and Elizabeth Griffith. He was sentenced to death, and his execution was originally set for September 13th, 2018. However, the Ohio Supreme Court put a hold to the death penalty while they continued to investigate the murders of the other three women. And this concludes this week's episode, and be sure to check out pictures of this case on our website at crimesaladpodcast.com, where you can see pictures of Sean, his victims, and the full 911 call. We'd like to credit our sources, which include Norwalk Reflector, WKYC, Richland Source, News 5 Cleveland, Mansfield News Journal, The Washington Post, and Cleveland 19, all of which can be found on our website at crimesaladpodcast.com. And for Himalaya and Patreon members, we now have our first bonus episode available, and we'll be posting a new bonus episode every month. These episodes are the same crime salad that you know and love, but with no ads and just crime. You're also invited to join us on our Facebook discussion group, where you can post links to cases that you think are interesting or share anything crime related and meet other true crime salad investigators just like yourself. And feel free to invite a friend. And if you would like to support Crime Salad, follow us on Himalaya and write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us now. This really helps us move up in the charts and helps other listeners get their hands on Crime Salad. Remember to follow us on Instagram and be sure to tell a friend about Crime Salad. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Crime Salad is a true crime podcast, delivering a healthy portion of crime. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. All the blood, love, all the pain.